Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, and I am joined today uh, in a little uh, unique twist that we don't get to do very often by our producer, Dan Humiston, uh, who's filling in for Rob Hunt, who is out on the ski slopes in Utah on Kid Detail this afternoon. And uh, we understand and hope that all goes well for him. And Rob will be back with us next week. Dan, nice to have you aboard today. Uh, it's great to be here. I'm always on the other end of this, so it's it's nice to be able to chime in. For sure. And we've got some interesting things to talk about. I know stuff uh, that you've had some interest in. Uh, so we've got some very, very good uh, news stories today. There's a lot going on in the marijuana world, uh, most of which I would say is very, very positive. And it's always nice to be able to report on positive news because Lord knows uh, there's more than enough uh Bad news. Uh, once we get through all of that, we are going to uh, be focusing today on the Grateful Dead's performance from January 10th, 1979 at the Nassau Coliseum in Uniondale, New York, out on Long Island. Uh, this is kind of a legendary venue for the Grateful Dead. I know Rob has seen them there a few times. I never made it out to Nassau and never had a chance to see them there, but uh, they've, they've played some historic shows there. Uh, not the least of which is this one on January 10th of 79, and then subsequently, as we all know, in uh, uh, 89 or 90, when they had Brantford Marsalis join them on stage for what many would argue is uh, the greatest version of Eyes of the World ever, and uh, we've we've talked about that, and I'm sure we'll get back around to that one again someday, just because it's kind of hard to go any period of time without talking about it. But this is back in 1979. This is a real transition point for the Grateful Dead. Uh, it's kind of the end of the uh, Donna and Keith era, just before the beginning of the um, Brent era. And it seems like, as you'll find out as we go through it more, the dead are kind of shaking out the closet and you know cleaning things up as they get ready uh, or anticipate this coming transfer. So uh, let's, uh, I don't have to even introduce what this uh, introductory clip we have that Dan's going to roll for us right now. So listen to it and we'll talk about it in a second. That's just good stuff. First of all, St. Stephen is always fun to listen to. Second of all, this is a great version. And third of all, as we'll talk more about when we get to the show, uh, this would be the last time that the Grateful Dead would play St. Stephen uh, for four years until October of 1983, uh, when they played it three times, twice on the East Coast, once on the West Coast, and retired it forever. You know, for a song that was for so for such a long period of time, such an integral part of the uh, the Grateful Dead repertoire and uh, an active song list. Um, this really marked the end of a beginning for a tune like St. Stephen. But as you'll hear later on when we get to the show, there were a lot of other songs uh, from back in the day uh, that were able to make a comeback as well. So it's a great show, and stick around with us for a few minutes as we go through this uh, marijuana stuff that we have to talk about. And we will get to the Grateful Dead shortly. So, Dan, um, as you know, uh, there's lots of deals going on right now in the cannabis world, deals that are, uh, you know, so large that, you know, sometimes they really kind of make you uh, 
stop and uh, uh, you know do a double take. But this first story that we have is is kind of significant, not because of the size of the deal. The, the numbers actually, by comparison to some of the other things we're going to be talking about today, aren't really uh, so large or so huge. This isn't a billion-dollar deal, a $975 million deal. What makes this uh, news article here so significant is that it involves Scott's miracle Grow, And Scott's miracle Grow is a currently existing traditional company that has a, a huge market share of the home lawn care uh, uh, market. They also are one of the first traditional companies in the country to make such strong inroads into the cannabis world. They have a New York-based company called Hawthorne Gardening Company, which is a hydroponic business, and they also are a, becoming a, uh, a major supplier of equipment for uh, producers and cultivators in the cannabis market, as well as uh, looking into their own uh, potential cannabis holdings at some point in the future. What makes this story so interesting now for Scotts is that we see the way that you know big corporate America works uh, as compared to everybody else, because the story part starts by pointing out that they have uh, or they're expecting through their Hawthorne, Hawthorne Gardening Company to experience a decline of about 40% in business this year because of a quote-unquote slowdown in the cannabis market and supply chain disruptions. Now, the supply chain disruptions are familiar to all of us. Slowdown in the cannabis market, I guess, you know, I, I understand that overall, maybe on certain levels, certainly in states like Illinois uh, and others that we've been talking about in the past with Rob and with uh, Jim Marty, none of us have, have really seen significant slowdowns in our industry. But nevertheless, Scott's miracle Grow is saying, yeah, we're, we're going to be experiencing a decline of about 40% of our business in the cannabis market. But at the very same time, they're moving to expand their cannabis holdings by purchasing a company called Lux Lighting for $215 million and a company called True Liberty Bags for $10 million. So Lux is a leading provider of lighting systems for growers. True Liberty provides liners and other storage solutions for dry and cure cannabis plants. Um, and here's Scott's, which is headquartered in Ohio, has, has certainly made its name and its living in the, the home lawn care. This is significant. Not only are they active in the market, but even in the face of a decline of about 40% of business in their primary uh, cannabis entity, uh, they're still looking to expand, which can only be positive and has to suggest that these guys are looking at the market long term and are excited about that. And in fact, they go on to say that Scott's is expecting that the Lux brand that they've just purchased will add up to $100 million in sales on an annualized basis, um, which plans to market and distribute the brand uh, up and down the East Coast and some of the uh, emerging cannabis markets. So, uh, you know, this is like, this, this is the way big corporate America operates, Dan. You know, they don't view it and say, wow, things are drying up. They view it and say, we're going to move hard and be ready for when things uh, uh, loosen up again and people are looking for large quantities of marijuana. Yeah. Well, you know, this kind of builds off of a story that happened back in August that, that I, I don't know if it kind of flew under the radar, but there was a, a branch of Canopy Growth, the large Canadian cannabis company, was called Canopy River, and that was their capital company, and that was they used that to do acquisitions, and it was I think it was sort of an arm's length relationship. Well, Canopy River divested their relationship with Canopy Holdings or Canopy Growth, 
and formed and, call, and formed RIV or RIV Capital, so that they and with the with the sole goal to create a MSO in the United States. So they're moving out of Canada and they're moving in the United States. And one of their first investors were Scott's Miracle Growth through their subsidiary Hawthorne. They put 150 million dollars into that fund. So there's a lot of pieces of this puzzle that. If, if you're looking at it too closely, you don't see them. But if you can pull back a little bit, you can see Scott's miracle Grow has a lot of interest in this industry. And just by the fact that they, you know, they see a 40% drop, but that doesn't even, that doesn't even slow them down a bit. And <laughs> you know, they got a lot invested in this. And it's really exciting for us because finally, you know, the people, the, 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 uh, the outside companies are like, we well, got to take a chance. We're going to go in this. We're all in. That's true. And, you know, and, and it's great to see that, you know, it, you know, this is just another big step in the road to normalization that people can look to and say, you know, I mean, Ohio is, you know, has its conservative roots, certainly, um, you know, although it also has its pro marijuana advocates as well. But when you get a company that's based, you know, in that part of the, the country uh, that becomes so successful and, and, you know, big and then decides that it wants to expand into this cannabis stuff, that just adds so much credibility to the industry. You know, in places where people, you know, who are big um, uh, Scott's Miracle fans, but not necessarily marijuana fans, now stop and say, hey, look, you know, hopefully what they're going to say, right, is look, you know, Scott's is into it. You know, they wouldn't be getting into something if it wasn't good. So, um, you know, I like to think that it's, it's a positive move. And, uh, you know, as long as they're not forcing mom and pop shops out of business, which they don't seem to be doing yet, then uh, I, you know, only see this as a plus for the industry. And, you know, as more big companies start to uh, be willing to put their name behind products in this industry, uh, yeah, yeah, it's just gonna, it's going to make things much easier to normalize and, and, and get investment dollars for the smaller businesses. Good news. What else we have? Okay, well, another one that we have, and this is interesting as well, because uh, we have uh, the Ed- Edmonton, Alberta-based company, Aurora Cannabis, that is doing business, interestingly enough, with Israel. And the business that they're doing with Israel is they are shipping medical marijuana to Israel. Uh, because, as it turns out, Israel is one of the fastest-expanding fastest medical marijuana markets in the world. They have had medical marijuana for a while, and now the program is expanding to allow more people in. They don't have adult use in Israel yet, um, so a lot of people are, are going at it through uh, the medical marijuana angle, Israel uh, has become, uh, you know, one of a very small number of uh, meaningful import markets for the medical cannabis world. Um, you know, it's nice that Aurora CEO Miguel Martin uh, is very positive about this and sees this as being able to ex- expand, hopefully, adult use cannabis across Europe and maybe even uh, into markets like Israel as well. Um, but the numbers for Israel are, are amazing, considering that the population of the country is maybe somewhere right around five or six million. Uh, maybe it's more than that now, but not significantly. But there were 108,000 active medical cannabis patients in Israel in November of 21. And it, it uh, this makes Israel one of the biggest centrally reg- regulated medical markets in the world. And that's up 30% from the year before when they uh, only had 76,000 registered patients. So Israel is an exploding market. I was there for their... Uh, one of the first ever uh, cannabis conferences they had there in April a few years ago. And although I've been to Israel a number of times with family and uh, camp and things like that, you know, as a, uh, as a return to the Jewish homeland and to, to visit family and friends, to actually go there for a cannabis conference was a pretty amazing 
uh, experience. And it's just great to see that the market is so strong that they're reaching out. And it's always great to see that there's countries uh, that are willing to do business with Israel and help them uh, with their market. I, I think the real question is, uh, at what point will Israel, uh, Israeli cultivation get uh, be up and running to a point where they don't need to be making these purchases from outside the country? They can be supplying them from where in. And it's going to be interesting because what the article points out um, is that dried flour... You know, as we refer to it, flour accounts for 89.2% of all approved cannabis treatments in Israel, uh, meaning it's it's a predominantly dry flour market. And extracts, which account for just about the other 10%, have seen very little growth. But you know, by my way of knowing and understanding Israelis and Israeli sensibilities, I think that just makes more sense to them as well. You know, if if you've always been a a, a, a marijuana smoker and you smoke flour, sometimes it's kind of hard, you know, to to, to really grasp the uh, the extract, and it you know it doesn't smoke as well. You can't roll joints. You can't do things like that with it. So, um, but it's just really really nice here to see uh, you know Israel uh, sig- uh, factoring in in a significant way uh, into the international cannabis market. Yeah, the other thing that's really exciting is that the larger companies in Canada they took a they took a pretty good beating because I think they overplayed the fact that. Canada was an export country. And, I, and, and while that's such a great benefit, it only is a great benefit if there's an import company out there willing to take your stuff. And at the time, there really wasn't. So this, so this is a real shot in the arm for the Canadian market and a lot of the Canadian companies that have been kind of struggling because there really, there really wasn't any place for them to send their excess capacity. And now this is an opportunity and if you know if it goes well with Israel, then like you said, some of the other European markets may open up for for import, and that will be a real boost for the entire Cana- all the Canadian companies, and a lot of the shareholders can finally start to see some of their value come back. Yeah, that would be great. And you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of Americans who have invested in those Canadian companies, and have lost money. And if there's a way to revitalize those companies, both for the good of the Canadian program, the international markets, and the investors. Uh, then that really is a win-win for everyone and uh, and really works out well. So we'll see what happens with that. But I have to say, and you and I were talking about this before we started taping today, as big and significant as both of those uh, matters are, as we talked about, the one that really kind of uh, you know made us stop and do a double take is that MJ Biz has been acquired by a company called Emerald X, which is a uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Emeralds Holding, which is a New York-based business-to-business event and media company, for $120 million in cash, plus potential earnouts, which uh, says here could be worth as much as another 20 to $50 million. Now, this is just amazing because MJ Biz were one of the first guys on the scene when this all began. They, they started the, uh, the MJ BizCon, the one we were at in 2013, Dan, in Seattle, I think was the second one ever. They had had one the year before in Denver. That I think they said drew about somewhere between 70 and 100 participants. As I recall, we had about 600 people at ours. And uh, now we saw the numbers for this this one this past November, uh, you know, more or less still in the midst of a COVID pandemic. And it looks like they had almost 30,000 people at that one. Uh, I know the last one I was at a couple of years ago, they had over 40,000 people. So these guys uh, uh, have just really done an absolutely, you know, amazing job, you know. Chris Walsh and Cassandra Farrington 
and um, and Holland and 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 you know the job these guys have done in in promoting themselves and getting out there and I, I usually throw credit out as we're going along but knowing we'd get to this story today uh, MJ business the primary source for uh, most of the news stories that we report on and we talk about and uh, you know we we find uh, the quality of their stories the timing and the um, the interest levels all to be you know, very, very well suited for uh, the type of audience that we're trying to reach. And as far as we go, things that, that interest us and our client bases and uh, and everything that we're doing. And uh, I've gotten to know uh, Chris and Cassandra a little bit over the years. Cassandra was in Israel at the conference that I attended and uh, just couldn't be happier to see this work out so well for them in terms of, you know, really kind of cementing their place uh, as, as one of the founders of the... Uh, uh, cannabis mass media market, and I know you've had some experience with them, Dan, uh, particularly in your former life as a show promoter for Cannabis World Congress. Um, so, you know, to you, this much this this type of a deal must have a real special resonance to it. Well, it validates the you know that I we started we started I started the Cannabis World Congress Business Expo in. Um, our first show was right after their show in Seattle. So we did one in Las Vegas in June of 2014, so about six months after their show in Seattle. And I remember at the time so many people saying, well, why are you doing this? Why would people want to go to this? And, I, you know, you just knew it was a good idea. It, it was um, – and to their credit, I mean, they – I guess you'd consider them competitors, but I, I never really felt like there there was there was it was a, it was a competition because, you know, they had their markets, we had ours, and but they're real professional. They were always professional, always, you know, just real approachable, good people. And even back in the day when uh, George Gage worked was running their shows, um, he was you know another another real good, real professional guy. He's got a new a new cannabis um, uh, convention called. Um, Jeez, it's, it's, the name escapes me right now, but it was in Las Vegas at the same time this past year. Oh, just a quality group of people, and, and that's the people that you want to see win. Like, those are the people that you want to see win. And, and then back to our former point, again, you're bringing in a non-cannabis group is spending significant dollars to get into the cannabis industry. Significant dollars to get into the cannabis industry. It just validates what we're all doing, what we all believed all those years later, we can sit there and say, we were right. We knew it. We, we were right. I don't know if that gets us anything, but it, that's what makes you feel better that, you know, that we were right. Well, you were right. And, and, and you know, and MJ Business just done a great job. They talked about how MJ Business revenues uh, in 2021 were approximately $27 million, which they say was pretty much their pre-pandemic levels as well. So they really put together a, a, a great... Uh, business plan and, 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 and an idea for how they were going to take their way through this pandemic and, uh, and obviously succeeded. The good news uh, for those of us that still uh, rely very much on them as a source of our cannabis news and uh, who enjoy being able to attend MJ BizCon is that the current leadership team and staff is going to continue under the new ownership. Uh, as we all know, and Dan, you from experience as well, how important that is to maintain that continuity of ownership it's, it's it's you know with all due respect to the new owners that's great and good luck to them but you know it, it's 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 the, the 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 george gages and the uh, and the walsh's and the farringtons of the world uh who um you know ultimately have the ability to 
develop these types of businesses to really take them to the next level and, uh, and, and really make them something special. And as they do it, I think they're just demonstrating uh, the, the role that uh, the cannabis industry plays in, our, in, in, in the, this country's economy. Um, you know, this has become must-read material for folks inside and out of the industry who want to know what's going on. Their, their conference has become, you know, the event of the year. If you go to one cannabis conference a year, you go to MJ Biz, that's where you're going to see the most people, that's where you're going to get the most networking done, and that's a real credit to them. Uh, and by allowing this current leadership team and staff to remain in place, uh, you know, Emerald, I think, is just showing smart business sense because uh, this this team has already been successful. Why rock the apple cart at this point? But for those of us who deal with these folks, it's nice to know that they're not going away. Yeah. Hopefully the their publication remains in the same, whoever's leading that, whether it's Chris Walsh or whoever's in charge of the editorial, maybe it's Anne Holland. It's it's her company. I don't know. I've never met Anne Holland, but I, I know that she, it's her company that this, that this all started under. So I'm sure she's, heavily involved with it but you got to hope that they that 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 same team stays involved because they provide really great content really great content they do and the good news of all of this is that uh they've already announced mj bizcon for 2022 so it's never too early to start thinking about what you're going to be doing 11 months from now and uh, november 15th through the 18th in las vegas which i like uh, because that's back to their kind of traditional week before thanksgiving week schedule uh, that they had maintained for a number of years and uh, is much better suited for a lot of us than uh, uh, when they, they shifted the dates around one year into December and one year back to October. So I'm glad to see that they're back to this uh, traditional time slot. And I'm certainly going to make an effort on my part uh, to find myself back out there and uh, taking advantage of that. I just remembered that George Gage's cannabis conference in Las Vegas was called um, MJ Unpacked. MJ unpacked and that was it was a nice twist it was a lot a little bit smaller but a little but 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 it was a it, it was another great one so it just goes to show there's room for everybody in that space there really is there really is and uh, you know people just have to be patient and look for the right uh, opportunity so this is a good day of marijuana news a lot of great uh, uh, business deals going on in the industry at prices that reflect real value and uh, um, people really accepting this industry. Uh, as coming along, and, and it's always nice to see when you know one of the original companies uh, has an opportunity to, to cash out at a uh, at a price that justifies the value that they've brought to the industry. So again, congratulations to our folks at MJ Biz, and thank you for being the source of our news stories. You make us look good, so we're glad that you do well, also. Shifting over to our musical side. What we want to talk about today is the Grateful Dead. I, I don't want it to go uh, unnoticed that between the, the last time we taped and, and today uh, was New Year's Eve, and even though you guys hear our shows a couple of days later, uh, sometimes it works out well, sometimes uh, uh, it can be a little bit more distracting, and certainly fish in the sense that you know by, now, by the time everyone listens to this podcast, uh, the New Year's Eve show is already 10 days old. But I just think that it has to be mentioned how uh, they were able to put this together in this ninth cube idea and uh, the opportunity to actually be able to listen to live fish. And, you know, it, yeah, it, 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 
I think it's always going to, to a certain degree, lack the energy you get when you have a huge crowd screaming behind you as you break into tunes that everyone desperately wants to hear. But these guys do a really, really good job in this type of a situation. There was a lot of lighthearted banter and uh, other stuff going on, and I think they really had a good time. And uh, it, it made a really nice evening for all of us, especially those of us whose football teams lost on New Year's Eve. Uh, I'm still a big Go Blue fan, but uh, the dogs had their day. Uh, but afterwards, to be able to just go and tune into Fish for a while uh, was very enjoyable and a nice way to uh, uh, bring the emotions from the uh, not very hard fought game back to a normal level. So uh, hats off to Fish for. Uh, doing what they do best, and that's just creating fun for people and living up to the moments. Larry, was the Fish concert, did that roll right through New Year's on the East Coast, or was it? did it end before the, the stroke of 12? No, no, it, it did. They, it, yeah, um, the, um, the show uh, started, I want to say, at 8.30 East Coast time, and they actually played three full sets like they would have if they had been playing in Madison Square Garden. So timing-wise, it took them through New Year's Eve, yes. Oh, that's kind of neat. So you could have had that playing in the background during your party. That's great, yeah. What a good idea. You know what, it's, for a lot of people that could it'd be kind of cool if they simulcast their concerts on New Year's Eve because, like I said, you'd have that playing in the background or you could play that, that music could be playing during your New Year's Eve party. That'd be fun. Yeah, it does. And the truth of the matter is that, you know, they do it. I mean, the Dead did it for years and years on, you know, regular commercial radio because that's all there was. But, you know, the the big rock stations in Chicago would always, you know, fight over who was going to get to play the Grateful Dead New Year's show from California. And it used to be on a network, I think, called Westwood One. And they did it, but, you know, they would pick it up every year. And, of course, you know, timing-wise, it was always a little awkward because the Dead would typically come on at New Year's Eve around 10 o'clock in the evening which was already midnight on the in central time and 1 a.m on the east coast so by the time they were counting down to midnight we were at 2 a.m and uh, if we stayed up to listen to the whole show it would sometimes run until 4 or 5 a.m but you know once uh once kids came along you know dashing off to all of those shows never was much of an option anymore um at least not in the short run so it was nice to be able to have uh something to fall back on and uh, and still be able to catch some of the shows so fish is just kind of carrying on a proud tradition there i think and it's nice to see and uh, although the fans are disappointed they didn't get to go see them live uh this is certainly the next best thing the other big musical event is the problematic going in the other direction because between the time dan and i are taping this today and when you listen to this on January 10th, the first weekend of playing in the sand will have uh, transpired down in Mexico. Um, and this is all very interesting because uh, it is scheduled for this weekend and then the following weekend. And um, I know they, they completely sold out. In fact, uh, they sold out on their uh, just providing tickets to all the people that had been to shows at playing in the sand in the past and were given the first option. Uh, I think that pretty much sold them out before they even really got to the public. But of course, with everything that's going on now, with Omicron numbers and concerns over traveling and leaving the country, I was wondering you know, whether the shows were still going to be on, whether they would consider postponing them like Fish did with New Year's Eve, or what might happen. Of course, uh, you come to realize that playing in the sand is a little bit more detailed, and uh, they're booked into these resorts with these uh, special rooms and all sorts of stuff that they get. And, you know, if you try and do it three or four months later, the stuff is all booked up through the season. And I guess uh, this is their only way to do it. It's a lot of money that would all have to be refunded. But, hey, look, you know, if, if they're going to put into place protocols uh, like they say they're going to have for testing and, and vaccine and all of that, 
you know, then I suppose, you know, if it's a risk people want to take, God bless them and, uh, and you know, go go ahead and do it. I, I did hear that they are offering full refunds for folks who are about, you know, nervous about doing that kind of traveling, which is interesting, but the right thing to do. And we will hopefully all know more because uh, our intrepid former host, uh, Jim Marty, uh, is, I, I can't remember if he said if he was going to the shows this weekend or next weekend, uh, but he will be down there for one round of the shows for sure. And uh, we will be very excited to hear from Jim when he gets back. He'll call in and give us an update on how it all went down, both musically and uh, procedurally, uh, whether they got that all taken care of. So lots of fun things going on in the, in the dead world. Yeah, you were talking about going down there like a year ago. We were kind of, you know, you were, you were, we actually, I think we even talked about doing our, our, our podcast down there. But, you know, things just too unsettled right now. There's just too unsettled. Yeah, you know, I, I applaud anyone who says, you know, that they feel comfortable going down there. By all means, go and enjoy yourself. If you're going to go look for a place to escape for a little while during the pandemic, Dancing on the Sand with the Grateful Dead is a pretty good place to be. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, if, 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 the, if the band is okay with it, then God bless them, you know. Hopefully they'll all do it the right way and everybody will come out of there uh, having had a great time and uh, all very healthy. But we will get updates and we will report on that as we go along. Um, so, today's January 10th. Quick birthday shout out to my brother Stephen, who was born January 10th in 1969. So, he's getting up there in age now, too. Uh, I've gone to many a dead show with him. We will uh, keep each other advised as to when the latest box sets are being released so uh, that neither one of us misses it. Um, but he has a January 10th birthday, so I hope he has a great day. And a shout out to him. January 10th, 1979, the Grateful Dead played at the Nassau County Coliseum. We talked about that a little bit before. We heard on the intro the uh, clip from St. Stephen, which was the last time they played St. Stephen until October of 1983. And for me, the cool thing about that is I was at the show in Madison Square Garden in October of 1983 when they broke St. Stephen out again uh, for the first time since that show in Nassau. And it was that was my 10th Grateful Dead show I ever saw. And out of a, about 110 or more so that I ultimately saw. And I still probably have to say that, you know, it was it was, it was the most exciting, you know, kind of hair-raising moment ever for me at a Grateful Dead show. And I was there when Phil broke out Box of Rain at, in Hampton. Uh, and that was 86, I think, or 86 or 87. And uh, that, was a, that was a huge moment. I was at the uh, Greek Theater. Uh, 20th anniversary shows in 1985 when they broke out That's here, That's It for the Other One, uh, which was a great moment. But St. Stephen was really kind of the, the lifeblood of the band, and it was the, it, it, it had a status uh, far beyond many of the other dead songs. And I think that was just a spillover. We talk about the Primal Dead back in the late 1960s, and St. Stephen was a major part of that, the, right? The Dead's a standard suite of tunes back then was Dark Star into St. Stephen, into the Eleven, into uh, Love Light with Pigpen going off on that uh, forever and ever. Uh, Love Light survived over the years uh, with Bobby ultimately picking up the mantle and singing it. Uh, Dark Stars, we'll talk about in a minute, uh, made its way in and out of the uh, dead repertoire uh, after the heydays of the uh, late 60s and the early 70s. The 11 just pretty much got dropped altogether, and that's very unfortunate, and it, not until Phil and Friends and the other ones, and uh, now Dead & Co. came around and really picked it back up again. But St. Stephen was one of those tunes that people just went to shows forever trying to see, and nobody could understand 
how such a, a standard song like that that was so important to the fans was never played again. And I've never really heard a very satisfactory answer to it. Uh, Jerry's dead, so we can't ask him. Uh, we have what we have. But, but the significance of this show in 1979 is it really does mark this transition of the dead saying, we've played the hell out of St. Stephen over the last 10 or whatever years. And enough with that for a while. We need to move in another direction. We need our fans to be digging us for other tunes. Uh, but just to show that they're, uh, you know, equal opportunity about that, uh, every, you have to remember that this show that we're talking about right now, January 10th, 1979, is just 10 days, really nine days, after the New Year's Eve show that we were talking about uh, a week or two ago, the the uh, Farewell to Winterland. And when we closed out that show, we played the uh, the Countdown to Midnight uh, as kind of our, our lead out and, you know, for everyone to to lead into their, their New Year's celebrations. But one of the significant parts of that show that night was that the Dead played their first Dark Star in four years. Uh, the last time they had played it was October 18th, 1974. And then at Winterland in, in the farewell on uh, the night of de December 31st, which is misleading because the show really started at midnight. So the bulk of it was played, if not all of it, was played on January 1st of 1979 in the early morning hours. Um, but the dead broke out a, another dark star there. And of course, the significance of that dark star is this is now the first dark star on the East Coast in four years. When they had played it 10 nights earlier at the Winterland, that was out in San Francisco. So of course, all the New York fans had heard about it by that point. And uh, very, very many of them were likely very excited and, and anticipating it. And as a result, I, I was tempted to play a clip right at the very beginning of the show uh, at the beginning of, uh, of now when we dive into it, at the beginning of the, the song Dark Star, just to hear the uh, the crowd react. And while it is wonderful and great to hear the crowd react, uh, we're really here to hear the music of it. And uh, so I think we've got a, a good clip here for Dan to run for us uh, of this Dark Star. This is the first East Coast Dark Star uh, in four years on January 10th, 1979. <laughs> Dark Star, you can recognize it a mile away. You can hear the crowd. This is already mid-song, and they're still screaming and yelling. Um, and, you know, Dark Star uh, was probably the spiritual core of the Grateful Dead. You know, St. Stephen was maybe the, the, the most standard song and traditional song you could sing along with. Dark Star is not really designed uh, for people to sing along with. There's only two verses. They're kind of short and choppy. Sometimes Jerry muddles his way through them. Sometimes he just blows them off altogether and just likes to play the music. So people talk about seeing Dark Star, but a Dark Star jam or Dark Star, but they only played verse one or they only sang, you know, verse two. Um, so you know, this this is a this is a full blown Dark Star. Start first verse, second verse, long jams, and you know, it for for new Deadheads, it might take a little while to really 
understand and get into the full significance of a dark star, but the first time you're at a show and you know you're trying some psychedelics and the Grateful Dead break off into one of these, you know, eighteen to twenty minute dark stars, you know, even the ones that they did subsequent and they did play some uh intermittently off and on after that once or twice in the 80s uh, the late 1980s they, they they broke them out they broke it out sp sporadically through the 90s they seemed to have a real liking for rfk stadium in washington dc in a couple of summers in a row they played it there i think they played one at uh giant stadium and ultimately the uh the last dark star ever played uh was on march 30th 1994 in atlanta and, you know, that was the day that it got retired and, you know, Jerry never brought it back. And just a little bit more than a year later, he was dead and that was the end of the band. So it, it, it's, it's kind of nice, though, when you, when you think about it, how it really marks the symmetry that here with not just even the same show, but the same set of music, the Dead are playing their last St. Stephen for four years and their first Dark Star in four years. And, uh, you know, a true deadhead might say, well, for God's sakes, boys, why aren't you playing them together like you used to do in the late 60s and let's really get that magic rolling again. They had become such a different band by this point than they were uh, in the late 1960s. They had just had the whole 1970s and all of their songwriting and all of these albums that came out, many of which we've talked about, not the least of which was American Beauty and Working Man's Dead. And, 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 and the way that they kind of adopted uh, this Americana style of, of music and really adapted to the different eras that they were in. And yet here, you know, all the deadheads want to hear is Dark Star and St. Stephen. And, uh, you know, I think it speaks a lot to the power of those tunes that, you know, deadheads who, many deadheads, in fact, Rob is one of them. By the time he started seeing the dead, they had already done the 83 St. Stephen's and never played them again. And there are you know, few people who saw the dead as many times in the 90s, at least, than I know, as, as our co-host Rob Hunt, but he never got it although he did get a few dark stars and other things, so I don't really feel too bad for him. He, he got plenty of good stuff, um, as did we all. If you saw enough shows, you always got more than, uh, more than you knew what to do with. But that's just you know the vagaries of going to the Grateful Dead show, and that is exactly the thing that would drive people to Dead shows again and again and again. What if tonight's the night that they decide to do Dark Star and St. Stephen in the same set for the first time in who knows how many years? And, and there it was. So um, it, was, it was a really great part of that show, and uh, really, really fun to hear, uh, I'm sure, for people who were there. Larry, I'm always curious about this. You know, we just take for granted because we have the Internet that you know, information just travels almost instantly. But how, first off, how did you, how did you know that they hadn't played St. Stephen's in, in, you know, a length of time? And, and, and I guess the next question to follow up is how long had it gone before people it started to people started to realize that it had like i mean i guess if you have one or two shows people are like oh no big deal if it's like 50 shows it, what at what point did people s start to recognize that it's not playing and then how did you guys know you know it, it, it's funny as we sit here and we talk about it and we take for granted that i can just go on the internet right now and call up any of this information in 30 seconds or less and have it all right in front of my face. You know, what was the last time the Grateful Dead played St. Stephen? Click, boom, here it is. How many times did they play it? Boom, here it is. And the truth of the matter is this, this is part of what made the Grateful Dead so cool and so interesting to me is that there's this, this whole culture that was so heavily focused on the music and the spontaneous nature of it. And so when, when anything is spontaneous, what it's really telling you is the band's playing anything they want to play, so the songs that they're playing must be the songs that they want to play. It was, well, why, do they, why don't they want to play St. Stephen now? They, you know, they played it before, and we all used to hear it. It was all great, but you know, the new deadheads in the early 1980s 
hadn't had a chance to hear it and um you know people were you know a little bummed out there'd always be a little grassroots movement but the dead there was lots of ways to know what was going on at at, at uh at some point in the in, maybe in the mid-1980s these guys came up with a 1-800 telephone number called run usa dead or something and you would type you, you after a show was over usually about 20 minutes after a show was over you could call in and sometimes you'd get a busy signal sometimes you wouldn't and you and basically you'd listen to a guy read the set list and he'd read it really slowly so you could write it down while he was doing it because people complained that if you read it too fast, they had to call back in a second time to get the set list. But that was one way you know, to, to find immediately. But, but a song like St. Stephen was so well-known and so popular uh, and deadheads were always traveling all over the place that, yes, at some point, you know, probably, I would guess, within a month or so, uh, people were probably noticing, uh, gee, you know, we haven't heard of St. Stephen. What was the last St. Stephen? And certainly by the time they got to their next tour after this tour was over, uh, you know, if, if it hadn't been brought back, uh, you know, it, then it starts getting talked about. But it's the kind of thing that the deadheads pass on to one another. And I learned all of this going to shows with my buddies who were all big deadheads and just sitting around and listening to them talk. You know, like, or we'd be, you know, over at somebody's house listening and saying, "Oh yeah, this is a great version of Saint Stephen." And I, you know, gee, you know, do they ever even play Saint Stephen? No, man, they haven't played it in, you know, since, uh, you know, since uh, January tenth, nineteen seventy-nine, dude. That was the last time it was. And then, you know, you hear it from a few other people, and eventually, I mean, I had no way to independently verify it, right? I couldn't go back and check set lists and, until. Uh, the first version of Dead Bass, which was the first official compilation of uh, set lists of Grateful Dead shows that, that really went through and, and, and compiled them all. But my recollection is that was already, we're talking mid to late 80s, but, you know, even back in the 70s and, you know, right from the beginning, uh, the Grateful Dead music just attracted the kind of people who, you know, Rob says it really well, you know, music nerds, people who love the music, but it's more than just the music. And that's why, you know, and I know we've beat this comparison to death on this show and people do all the time, but it it compares really well to baseball, you know? And it's, it's just that kind of thing because every time you go to a show, something's going to be different. You know something's going to be different. So record keeping becomes really, really important. And the people who choose to do the record keeping, like Dick Ludvala and now David Lemieux, who do the, the From the Vaults albums and are the ones who, you know, really, you know, go back and, and, and follow all of this stuff and, and, and kind of keep it going. And that's just the way that this, 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 this band, but it's not just, you know, now Fish and all of these bands, you know, there, there's always, it's, it's a hierarchy, but not a hierarchy in terms of who has more power. It's a hierarchy in terms of who has more knowledge, more firsthand knowledge. You know, and it's one thing to say, oh, man, I'm listening to this show, uh, you know, uh, from this bar mitzvah party in St. Louis, and it's kind of cool. And then it's another thing to talk, we did a couple of weeks ago, to talk to Mark Slosberg, a guy who was actually there. You know, and now you're hearing the firsthand account of what really went down. And for deadheads, you know, many of us, at least, we soak that up like sponges because, you know, we live and die with all of this little, into oh, that's so interesting, they did that. And then, you know, guys will even take it deeper and try and use that to show connections to, well, they were playing this song that way at that time, and this must have been the factors that were influencing them. Or, you know, there's deep studies that go into all of this stuff that gets a little too deep and, and, and scholarly for, for guys like me. Um, but yeah, that, that's, that's just what always made the dead great from the beginning was this idea of spontaneity. You know, you, you don't know what you're going to get, but you're sure that whatever you get, you're going to like it. And yeah, you know, there was enough of us who saw enough shows over the years that eventually you kind of get jaded and you're like, oh man, they're playing Little Red Rooster again, you know. 
point is right now today, you know, uh, any Grateful Dead fan I know, you know, would give their two front teeth to see Jerry Garcia and the Dead play Little Red Rooster one more time. So, you know, we, we, we take them as we get them. Um, but yeah, this is always what's been so special about the Grateful Dead and, uh, uh, and really drew us in on all of this. And, you know, this, this is just one of those shows that, you know, again, I highly recommend, you know, to our listeners, uh, you know, to go out, you can find it on archive.org. Um, the entire set list is just, uh, you know, so amazing to me. And even, you know, as a, as a, uh, a later day deadhead with the dead shows, that I was used to going to see, you know, when, when you can get a, uh, uh, a, a second set at a Grateful Dead show uh, that basically runs, starts with Shakedown Street and I Need a Miracle, Birth of Good Love and Dark Star, then into the drums, then Space, then into a Wonderful Warfrat, then into the Last St. Stephen they're going to play, a little Chuck Berry at the end. Um, to me, uh, you know, that's a, that's a great show on any level when, when you can get a set list like that and how well they've played it here. Um, but, you know, you throw in this, this special history of uh, their last uh, St. Stephen, uh, their first Dark Star for long periods of time. And, you know, it, what's so wonderful, you know, is with all of these uh, tunes going back and forth, is, as you'll hear in a minute when we sign off and we play for the outro, uh, of our show, a, uh, a a little segment from Shakedown Street, which at that time was just beginning to take off. Uh, uh, the album was released in, I think, late 77, early 78. They were calling it Disco Dead. We've talked about Saint Stephen, uh, about Shakedown Street on this show a lot. Um, but, you know, this is a Shakedown Street that's played with all the energy and uh, excitement that you would expect from that tune, but especially when it was still so fresh for the dead and for their fans. And, you know, to be able to be there at a moment as, you know, the dead are kind of still figuring out what they're doing with St. Stephen and Dark Star, which have been part of their repertoire for so long. Uh, and then there's so many new songs that are just, uh, you know, people at the time were like, oh, yeah, this is that Shakedown Street. And I'm sure people loved it, but, you know, it still didn't hold a candle yet, you know, to songs like Dark Star and St. Stephen. But yet, you know, we're going to hear it here in a minute, and it, it, it's just so great that... Uh, it, to me, it really makes this a special show and one uh, that people should really take a moment to listen to because you just get this great uh, meeting point of so many different directions in uh, in the Grateful Dead history. It, 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 it's really a lot of fun. Um, you know, I, Larry, I want to remind our listeners that we always have the links to the shows that we're playing clips from in the show notes. So if you ever, so if you're listening to the show and you're like, hey, you know what, I'd love to listen to that show, we have the link to um, to archive.org. To the up to the show that we're that we're previewing right in the show notes. So just go in there and click the link, and you'll be able to listen to the show. Excellent, even better than you won't have to try and figure out how to get there like I do, and I need my kids to do it for me. But yeah, great show. Um, and Dan, that's all I got for today. Um, great to have you on the talking side of the microphone for a change. Always nice to be able to catch up and uh, you know get to hear your stories and remind everyone that uh, you know you're far from a novice in this industry and well and. Um, uh, you know, you you date back as far as I do, and have had some amazing accomplishments on your own. So it's always nice to have you share some of that with us and with the listeners. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. I'm, although I'm looking forward to Rob get, getting back, and also looking forward to Jim's Jim's review from Playing in the Sand. I think that's. I mean, I mean, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming up, and not to mention a lot of great guests. So. 2022 is going to be a lot of fun on the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I think so. You know, it's already off to a roaring start. We've had a couple of great episodes already. 
Um, this is going to be a fun one, I think, for people to listen to. And you're right, uh, with the combination of, of Rob Hunt, uh, uh, you know, really moving in now and, uh, and uh, everything else that's been going on, we are really looking forward to great things for this podcast in this upcoming year and hope that all of our listeners will be along for the ride. So um, then until next week, uh, goodbye, everyone. Have a safe and healthy week. Enjoy yourselves and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. And now enjoy a little bit of Shakedown Street from January 10th, listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.